Welcome to the Activist Insights podcast, which takes you through Insightia's two magazines, Activist Insight Monthly and Proxy Monthly. I'm Kieran Paul, and as usual, I am joined by the editors of each publication, Jason Booth and Rebecca Sherritt. Getting into the two magazines, June's Activist Insight Monthly explores the true cost of a proxy fight. Spruce Point Capital Management at Danny Mer Scientific, Blue Walker's first hedge fund, and Curtis Wright's vulnerability. Whereas, June's Proxy Monthly explores the success of shareholder proposals at oil and gas companies, as well as the increasing number of no-action requests for shareholder proposals being denied by the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. We'll hear from Rebecca later in our feature called Proxy Corner. But first, Jason. So Jason, tell us what you've been working on this week. Well, this week we're working on our ESG special report, which should be out in a few weeks from now. After that, we'll be working on our next magazine, the Half Year Review, where we'll be looking at what's taken place so far this year and all the different developments, which will be interesting to see. One of those stories we'll be looking at is the ongoing campaign between Starboard Value and Box Inc., which has become a very hot campaign the outcome of which remains very much up in the air. So into the magazine, with annual meetings being done remotely and people flying less, has the actual cost of a proxy fight come down at all? No, they have not. In fact, we've been seeing them starting to tick up this year, especially among the large campaigns that have been taking place. So far this year, we've seen five contests where the companies anticipate spending over $5 million on proxy solicitation cases that matches the highs seen in 2017 and 2020. And the proxy season isn't over yet, so we could see more. The median cost for campaigns this year rebounded to about $2 million year to date. That's back to the high last seen in 2018. One of the reasons is uh, we've had some big fights. Exxon's fight with the engine number one was the biggest this year. And if you look at that one, on the company's side, the proxy advisors had 350 staff members working on solicitation. Well, even on the activist side, they had 250. That takes a lot of money. And a lot of these fights are being fought online through digital media, Facebook ads, Yahoo banner ads. And in fact, some of the ESG movement actually adds to some of these costs as well, because, for example, Exxon is centered on the environmental impact of Exxon's business and the impact that might have on their shareholders. Well, to prove that point, the activists has had to engage in a great deal of research and analysis by academics and, and experts in the field that costs money and likewise with the company itself. All of these things add up and what has already been an expensive practice has become even more expensive. What then are some of the most expensive proxy fights we've seen this year? Well, as mentioned, the most expensive is engine number one versus Exxon, at which Exxon estimated that it spent about $35 million, while the activists spent nearly as much of about $30 million. Now, these, of course, are estimated figures based on their proxy filings, so it's hard to know exactly how much was spent. The second most expensive was Legion and the Selim Advisors campaign at Coles, the uh, department store chain, which was an expensive one. Carl Icahn's fight at Delex Holdings was expensive. And standards fight, and that's interesting because it falls into the cost of 
ESG campaigns, Standard General made accusations about racial insensitivity on the part of the management of Tegna. And to prove that point, they engaged a research firm to do a study of the historical practices of the company, interviewed multiple former employees, sifted through the company's filings with regulators to try and find evidence of what they were claiming. Now, that cost money. Unfortunately, it didn't sway the shareholders and Standard General lost that fight anyway. And it's fairly unusual to have a proxy fight involving a Chinese company. Why is that? And why has Namtai Properties ended up in a year-long contest? It's true. It's been a very popular target for short activists, people going short on Chinese companies, largely because of their regulatory weaknesses and their governance weaknesses. But long campaigns are fairly unusual. There's only a fraction of Chinese campaigns versus in Japan, Korea, Singapore. So one of the most common reasons cited for why people don't like to take activist campaigns in China is because it's very hard to take legal action against the board of directors in a Chinese company in Chinese courts. Now, going to court is the last resort for an activist that they can do in most situations to force a company to make changes if they otherwise won't do it. But uh, the difference with Namtai is that even though it's headquartered in Shenzhen, China, it is domiciled in the Virgin Islands, which is a venue that the courts have generally been very sympathetic to shareholder rights. So that is why they went after the company. And also it seemed to be undervalued. But it's been a very interesting campaign. It's been a long one. And the company has tried various tactics to block the activist. They claimed that if the activists were able to uh, get a dominant position on the board, then the local Chinese banks would cut funding to the company. Now, that's something that the activists managed to block by raising their own money and saying, you know, we have money to cover the cost of any of the banks pull out. The company you know, fought very hard in the courts in the Virgin Islands to uh, oppose the activists. But in the end, the courts in the Virgin Islands sided with the activists and actually chastised the company's board, saying that they had acted not in the shareholders' interest, but in the interests of management. And as a result, the share price is up 350% since the activists started its campaign, which sort of shows that it is very difficult to mount a campaign at a Chinese company. But if you can do it right, the profits can be substantial. And Danny Mer Scientific is developing a biodegradable plastic. With all the positive excitement over ESG, why is it becoming the target of short sellers? Well, it's that positive excitement over ESG, combined with the fact that it's also went public through a um, special purpose acquisition company, a SPAC. Inexperienced investors push up the share prices of companies that are claiming to have environmentally friendly products and go public via a SPAC, which allows them to raise and list without actually disclosing a whole lot of information about what they do. Now, that is one of the claims that they have against Danimer, that its product doesn't work as well as it says. And the state of Kentucky, where the company is based, is actually looking into the company's product to see if it really does work as well as they say it does. That's still up in the air, and the company obviously defends itself. So we'll see where it goes with that. But it's an interesting case because we've seen other companies in the ESG space, such as Nikola, the electric truck company, and Plug Power, that have also been very popular and and touted their lack of an environmental footprint. But short sellers have identified problems, and as a result, the share prices have fallen. So we haven't seen that yet with Danner, but uh, it's one to keep an eye on. And what else should we look for in this edition? 
Well, we have a profile this month, also of a short seller, a Blue Orchid, which has recently, after about 10 years of you know, writing short reports, mostly on China, has just raised its first hedge fund and uh, will be going after maybe larger targets to go short on them, particularly against SPACs, which we talked about a few minutes ago, pointing out that a lot of these special purpose vehicles have gone public at huge valuations, but without providing a whole lot of information and are vulnerable and highly overvalued. And we'll have to be keeping an eye on what they do. And on our ESG corner, we'll be talking about the recent flurry of shareholder opposition to executive payout. This has got quite a lot of press, but according to the numbers we see, there hasn't been a whole lot more opposition than there has in the past. So even though the number of cases of opposition may not be that much greater than in the past, the depth of the opposition may be greater. Now let's touch on Activist Insight Online's latest in-depth article. So Jason, the in-depth we both have up on our laptops in front of us, you in New Jersey, me in London, it looks at the spat between Elliott Management and Duke Energy pitting a public utility that analysts largely think has gotten its act together recently against an activist with a formidable track record pushing breakups and a patient habit. Tell us about that. Well, this is a case where you wonder whether it would have come into the public domain if it hadn't been for the media. Elliot has apparently been invested in Duke for some time, going back into 2020, but newspapers reported the state a couple of months ago raising speculation that Elliot might be planning a, uh, a campaign at the, at the company. Well, Elliot, in possibly to counter uh, speculation, put out a report to the company indicating it wasn't planning a campaign, but it was recommending break up its operations into three geographical areas. Well, usually in cases like this, it's the activists that you know can be overbearing and emotional. But in this case, it was Duke that came back with a very uh, hard-hitting response to Elliot dismissing the recommendation, saying that it would be bad for the company, and in fact went on the offensive and pointed out failures. This is very late in the proxy season, so it's unlikely that Elliot can actually take any action at this point. And Duke has actually performed quite well over the last year, so it might be hard for Elliot to make a solid campaign and get shareholder support for any such campaign. Then again, this kind of high-profile debate can cause a company to look again at its operations, and Elliot's pressure could in time lead to the company making marginal improvements. And you can find all of our in-depths under the News tab on Activist Insight Online. And you never need to miss one again, because you can simply set up an alert straight to your inbox whenever we publish an in-depth piece. In fact, you can do the same with all of our products. Just visit our website to set your alerts up. And now it's time for Proxy Corner. So hello, Rebecca. Hi, Kieran. It's fascinating to hear what Jason had to say. Indeed. So as mentioned earlier, the SEC has been denying a lot more no-action requests for shareholder proposals this year. And this is something you investigate in the issue. Yeah. Following the appointment of the new SEC leadership, namely Alison Lee as acting chair and Gary Gensler as chair, the SEC's approach towards no-action letters has changed quite significantly and is actually benefiting investors. For those that may be less familiar with no-action process requests, this is a process by which issuers can try to exclude shareholder proposals from their proxy statements, primarily proposals that may conflict with state law or are deemed perhaps vague and misleading. But this process in recent years has kind of changed 
And now a lot of issuers might try to exclude proposals that are seen as micromanaging, especially proposals linked to ESG issues. But since Lee and Gensler have been appointed as SEC leaders, a lot more no-action requests are being rejected, and therefore a lot more proposals seeking ESG engagement have actually gone forward and performed surprisingly well. For example, in 2020, approximately 45% of exclusion requests for climate-related proposals were approved. So far this year, the new SEC leadership has only approved 23% of climate exclusion requests, a significant difference. And this also means more material ESG proposals are going forward on a variety of other issues, such as lobbying, diversity disclosure, and other social reporting issues. And what does this mean then for these shareholder proposals that are now going forward at upcoming meetings? A lot of proposals that would before have been historically excluded are now going forward to a vote and receiving impressive levels of support. The proposal by the Franciscan Sisters of Allegheny at Wendy's, seeking reporting on worker protection precautions, actually won 95% support at Wendy's recent annual meeting. Before the proposal was subject to a vote, Wendy's originally filed an exclusion request, which was denied. Once the new exclusion request was denied, Wendy's actually endorsed the proposal, a very interesting turn of events that led to the proposal being incredibly successful. There's also been similar cases with shareholder advocacy organisations like Follow This, filing greenhouse gas emissions reductions targets at oil and gas companies. Most proposals of this kind were historically excluded in previous years, but this year, two proposals of that kind at Phillips 66 and ConocoPhillips were denied exclusion by the SEC and won majority support. The SEC's revised approach towards no-action letters is clearly having a significant impact on the number of ESG shareholder proposals that are going forward to a vote this year. And it will be interesting to see whether this encourages more proposals being filed going forward in the coming years. Your latest trend piece looks at the success of shareholder proposals at oil and gas companies. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah. Climate proposals have more than doubled in average support at oil and gas companies this year. Average support was about 11.4% in 2020. So far this year, it's skyrocketed up to 26.7% support. Multiple proposals have also managed to win majority support at companies like Philips 66, Chevron and ConocoPhillips, asking for a variety of different issues, such as reduction targets and climate lobbying disclosure. And of course, there was the infamous proxy contest at ExxonMobil, where engine number one won three board seats. On top of this, the Children Investment Fund's Say on Climate campaign has also boosted investor engagement with climate transition concerns. Royal Dutch Shell and Total have put climate transition plans up for a vote at shareholder meetings, which have proved quite divisive among investors. In our article, we had some discussions with different investors, exploring why support for climate proposals at oil and gas companies have proven so successful. And we discuss, is this a passing phase or a trend that's here to stay? And are there any other interesting trends in shareholder voting emerging this year? Definitely. One thing I've really noticed is there's an increasing pressure on nominating committees to ensure there's sufficient female representation on boards. Lack of gender diversity is being very frequently cited as a reason to oppose directors in both the US, the UK and also in Europe. An interesting example of this is Capstead Mortgage Corporation. Their nominating committee members receive between 30 to 40% opposition primarily due to a lack of gender diversity. The pressure is also really amped up in the UK because of the Hampton Alexander Review. This is a government-backed standard that requires that boards feature a minimum of 33% female representation by the end of 2020. 
And of course, now that this deadline's been reached, investors are definitely being bold in calling out which companies have yet to meet these targets. One interesting example of this is Aston Martin. One fifth of investors oppose nominating committee chair Lawrence Stroll for failing to ensure adequate diversity levels. We've also been talking more to fund managers who are taking action about diversity issues this year. We recently spoke to Robert Walker, the global co-head of stewardship at State Street Global Advisors, and he spoke about how State Street are amping up their expectations for US companies this year in regards to board diversity, and it will expect US companies to meet UK standards in 2022. Thank you, Rebecca, and we look forward to reading more in the issue. That's it for today's episode. Make sure you subscribe to each magazine by emailing subscriptions at insitia.com. Remember, the Proxy Monthly is free of charge for everybody, and the latest of those took a definitive look at shareholder activism in Canada and the one before that in Europe. Plus, join the conversation by using the hashtag ActivistInsightPodcast on Twitter and if you want something discussed on a future episode, simply email press at insitia.com. As always, a message from me, please rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using, because it really does help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.